That's what I said, Mr. Pendleton. You are dead. You don't make any sense at all. You got me all mixed up. You must be a little cracked. I'm fast losing patience with you, sir. And I can't waste any more time with you. I'm doing New York and I gotta get there. Where can I find a taxi ride? Hey, a plane. That's what I want. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are still going through the 1941 nominees with Here Comes Mr. Jordan, maybe one of the most convoluted movies that we have watched for this project so far. And it's got such a clean premise which I'm not joking about. And like, actually, I thought the problem with this movie when it started was going to be that it was so self-congratulatory about the premise, you know, because God, the fucking opening text crawl. We read the greatest story ever fucking made, and we are gifting you with this movie of that story. Yeah. <laughs> was like, oh, Christ, what a bad way to start. And then it continued badly and ended badly. (laughs) The problem is it's a short story, right? Like it is based on, oh, it's just based on a play. I thought there was a short story involved too. There just is so little to the actual premise and that's its strength is just someone dies before their time and heaven's like, oh, we did an oopsie. (laughs) (laughs) I love that that's the way that you phrase it because it is treated with about that much gravitas. Yeah. And then they give the guy a new body because the old one is gone. But there's not a movie there. And so you've got to fill out time with endlessly repeating the premise because the guy who died has to be so friggin' stupid. And angels keep showing up to do M. Night Shyamalanian twists just to give you something to do. Yeah. Which makes them seem like real fucking assholes. This should be a comedy, and I spent so much of this movie being mad at it (laughs) and not laughing at anything. I don't know that there was a single moment in this movie that I found funny. Not even that I didn't find things laugh out loud funny, but there wasn't even an internal chuckle. It is skating on the idea of somebody being outwardly a different person than they are internally, being so inherently funny and interesting that they don't bother to have him do anything funny Or be in any interesting situations. I guess we should go through the plot, which I hate to tell our listeners is gonna be a lot of this episode. I don't know if it is. I mean, okay, so here's the thing. The actual bones of this story are nothing. The bones of the story is a boxer dies in an airplane accident, but it turns out he wasn't supposed to die. So an angel brings him back and puts him in the body of a millionaire, but then that millionaire dies and he gets put in the body of another champion boxer, which is what he wanted all along. And then all the complications of that sort themselves out basically through magic because it's impossible for the angels to fuck up their job is kind of the moral of the story, I guess. Uh, Yeah, even though they do constantly. Right. It seems like there's this sense of immutable destiny that writes every wrong no matter what happens. And in that case, how did they manage to fuck anything up and take this guy too early? 
The complications are stupid and a waste of time. Everything about this becomes a weird shaggy dog story, even though by rights it's the most important event in all of human history. Well, and I think one of the things that's really important to point out that you've missed in the plot, which is easy to miss because it's not nearly as interesting as the bones of this story, is that when he is put into this body of a millionaire whose name is Farnsworth? Which is extremely weird because... That's not a millionaire's name. Well, it's the name of the guy who invented the television. Oh, yeah. It's also the name of the professor on Futurama, but that's a reference to the guy who invented the television. Or is it a reference to the guy in this movie who is a millionaire? It's not. It's definitely not. But the reason that his body is available is because he is being murdered by his wife and his secretary, who is a dude, who are having an affair... It's Or is it just for money? I'm not really entirely sure. It's never really clarified. No, because the movie doesn't want you to look at the two of them for too long, because otherwise you would go, why is he just hanging out with these murderers for the hour of this movie? Like, why is he just chill with these murderers hanging around? They're murdering him in the bathtub, Farnsworth, and Claude Rains, who plays sort of the head angel, I guess, who is going to fix this problem where Robert Montgomery's soul was harvested too soon. I forget what the actual character's name is. Joe Pendleton, which is- Utterly forgettable. Yes. Brings him to the house and- then installs him in the body. Then this girl comes, who's, she's not a girl, she's a young woman, comes and is upset because her dad has been accused of fraud that he didn't commit and is in jail through some devious financial thing that Farnsworth and company did. So when Farnsworth wakes up and is actually Joe, Joe fixes this situation because he takes one look at the daughter and is head over heels for her. And theoretically, this is their romantic comedy love story? Yeah, except she then disappears from the movie. She's in like four scenes of this movie. And in two of them, she's just standing there. (laughs) They have so little interaction that every single moment of their interaction is just them staring at each other and going destiny to establish that they have some weird connection but there's no room to breathe in that no and they don't have even a totally contrived love at first sight moment or anything she just is like oh thanks for letting my dad go that was really nice and then out of nowhere it's i love you farnsworth Then she disappears. And, like, it is really hand-waved that, as far as she is concerned, this guy is still married. The wife that murdered him is still hanging around. And also constantly saying, like, when are we gonna murder this guy again? Yeah! And then it's supposed to be a real shock when they murder him again. Which they do. (sighs) Which the angels are incredibly stupidly coy about. They'll never go like, you know, your big murdering wife that's going to murder you. Well, she's going to murder you tonight. They just keep going. It is not your destiny to use this body to win the championship boxing match. And he's like, what does that mean? That's not an answer. And they go, maybe it's the best answer. No, you could just tell him that his wife's going to shoot him. (laughs) 
It's the worst answer. Then when he gets put in the other boxer's body, he somehow manages to convey to his former manager that it's actually him and they wouldn't be in this position if he hadn't rushed to get his body cremated. Oh, also, completely random, he plays saxophone, which he's doing while flying a plane when the plane crashes. The saxophone thing is just so that there's a way that people besides him know it's him. Because for some reason, the angels can't tell anybody, even though the angels can break whatever fucking rules they want whenever the hell they feel like it. They decide that they can't do anything to provide proof that this guy is who he says he is. And you think for a little while that means that no one can know, but then they seem just fine with people knowing. (laughs) He just has to be the one to convince them. None of the rules of this make any sense. They all are just arbitrary plot hoops to jump through to make this story last longer. Literally, heaven is on this guy's side. He cannot lose. And so heaven just keeps dicking with him for like a full hour. (laughs) To the point where the very last interaction, after a full hour, Mr. Jordan just goes, Oh, by the way, I'm going to wipe your memories of ever being Joe Pendleton. You're going to just think you're the guy whose body you're in now. And then goes like, Well, bye. Whoop. And that seems like a part of the deal that Satan would spring on you like that. Not a thing heaven would do is go like, oopsie, your personal identity no longer exists. Except now this guy's going to have a yin for saxophones and this one blonde girl. So he ends up having his fight and also Joe passes along the intelligence that Farnsworth's body is in the freezer in the basement of the mansion then it's his manager right who tells the police about it yeah yeah and then he hooks up with the girl at the end in this wild ass scene where they keep stressing she was in love with a man who just died and then just stare in each other's eyes and go but there's something there's something No, there isn't. The person you love just died. Yeah. He's like, oh, did you know this guy? And she says, I loved him. And then they walk off together into the sunset 30 seconds later, if that. Which is so weird because also she didn't need to be in love with Farnsworth. Right. You can just have them have this kismet connection, but then go like, this is weird because you are a crooked millionaire who tried to put my dad in jail and you're married. So I shouldn't feel this weird kismet connection with you. I do, but I have to resist it because I know you're a terrible person. And then she has a weird kismet connection with a person who isn't a terrible person at the end of the movie and it's all fine. Why did they even do this weird thing? Things I can say positive about this film is that it is lighthearted enough that while it's annoying, it definitely doesn't take itself seriously, which... Maybe it would be better if it did, but I don't know. I don't know. To me, it bothers me how seriously it takes all of the Destiny stuff. Yeah, that's true. Like how much it thinks it's saying something profound about the nature of man and fate 
when it's just like, you could just be screwing with this guy. The rules have no consistency. It doesn't match up with reality. Angels just declare that some people are meant to die on a certain day, but apparently destiny can be rewritten because then the guy can double die. It seems really arbitrary what is and isn't destiny, but the movie just keeps leaning on how important an angel telling you what destiny is. And it's... Yeah. I hate it. Susan, I hate it. I didn't hate it, but I in no way liked it. Here's the thing. This movie in microcosm is the fact that they had the title Heaven Can Wait just sitting there. And they went, let's change the title to Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Every decision in this movie is like, you have a fucking slam dunk, knock it out of the park, like fucking perfect thing, just sitting there. And then you go like, uh, let's do this overcomplicated, meaningless, dumb thing instead. That really is it in a nutshell. Because why bother with the Farnsworth thing at all? I mean, really. If the whole thing is that his destiny is that he is to be this heavyweight champion of the world or whatever... Why does he need to take a pit stop in a millionaire to end up in a completely inexplicable relationship, sort of, with a girl whose father, the person she thinks he is, threw in jail? The answer is, of course, that the core premise here is what if a workaday, kinda dopey schmo got shoved in the body of a millionaire? And, like, had the power of that millionaire. But the thing is, that's maybe five minutes of the movie because it stuffs all this other dumb stuff around it. You don't end up actually exploring that premise at all. Yeah. Which is the point of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) And, I really think the major problem with this movie is it doesn't have any idea what it's trying to say or what's interesting and ends up focusing on things that aren't very consistently. It feels like when I write things, I always hit a draft that feels like this movie. This draft where I've decided that there's some hill I have to die on. Like, we gotta have the whole thing about Farnsworth being murdered by his wife and secretary. Why isn't this working? I've got all 45 minutes of pipe that I have to do for the thing with the wife and the secretary. (laughs) The answer is just take that out, but they just didn't get there. It's like this messy, trash draft cul-de-sac got filmed and made. That's actually perfect, is that it's overwritten. Yeah, it's overwritten and it's just a mess. It is overcomplicated and overwritten and uh, I can see why they remade it like 830 times and gave it like a dozen sequels because it, again, seems like it ought to be a slam dunk premise and I think it is. They just messed it up. Yeah, Heaven Can Wait is, I mean, I haven't seen it, but is apparently quite good. Yeah. Which was the 1978 remake with Warren Beatty. I didn't love it. You're actually talking me into hating it. (laughs) It's the kind of thing I hate, which is an object that could be good but isn't. I have an irrational hatred toward that versus a thing that's just bad. That just was like always gonna be bad and like that's what it is. No, that makes sense. Because it's more frustrating. Yeah. Because you can see the good bones and you wonder how they fucked it up. (laughs) 
My question with this movie, though, is why was it nominated for Best Picture? Because I can usually figure that out, even if I disagree with the obvious reasoning. But I can't for the life of me figure out why this was nominated. I think it's got to be... No, but I'm looking at it. God, it got so many nominations. What else was it nominated for? It got Best Director. What? Best Actor. Best Supporting Actor, Best Story, and one for Best Screenplay, which is nuts. That is the most nonsensical thing I've ever heard. Also got nominated for Best Cinematography in a year where, just quick reminder, Citizen fucking Kane! Citizen Kane came out. The cinematography in this is... Uh, was there any? There are some pretty good wide shots of Farnsworth's mansion, but like that's- Yeah, but that's art direction really more than it is cinematography. Right, but it's like that's the category fraud thing of like the Academy just thinks that cinematography is it look pretty there <laughs> on screen. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I mean, Claude Rains is okay in it. He is not in it that often and his character is nonsense. It's really just, I enjoy Claude Rains. Yes, I did too, and that was going to be my argument, but Claude Rains, not nominated. Wh who was nominated for Best Supporting? Robert Montgomery, the guy who plays Joe Pendleton, and Edward Everett Horton, who is the angel that originally picks him up, that's also the, like, befuddled best friend in all of the Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire comedies we've watched. Right. What? I don't understand why either of them got nominated. Claude Rains is putting in work with his nonsense, like, Zincone, quasi-godlike figure of just plot convenience. But putting in work and being enjoyable to watch are two different things, I guess. I don't even think the other two are putting in work. They're unenjoyable and not trying to do a hard thing. Yeah, I don't understand this at all. All. I think they just thought this was a really good movie in 1941, I guess. I'm trying to think of a modern example of a, like, big, broad appeal movie that the Academy just becomes mysteriously infatuated with. I'm sure there are tons. I mean, La La Land? Yeah, mm, no, La La Land is more of an Oscar play than this movie is. This movie is not trying to win Oscars. It's trying to have a pretty good box office and thinks it's got just a can't-miss premise. And apparently it's right, because it tried to miss it every way possible and was still financially and critically successful. I can't name why this movie was nominated, but I guess we should rate it. Three, two, th th four. I just... I think three. Yeah. It was relatively short. Yeah. Claude Rains was okay in it. It feels so long, though. That's true. It took me two days to watch it, I'm not gonna lie. I watched it all in one sitting this morning, but I definitely went, how long is this movie? Before it started and went 94 minutes and then went like, oh, 55 minutes. That means I'm almost two thirds of the way done. And then paused it and was like, oh, should I have 40 minutes left? That's too long. I have too much of this movie left. Obviously don't watch this movie in case that wasn't abundantly clear. Yeah. The cast is pretty good, but it doesn't... It's bad. <laughs> it's a bad movie. And Heaven Can Wait was also nominated for Best Picture, so it, check out the podcast in a couple of years when we review it. That'll be nice. Like, weirdly, it will be nice to, like, yeah. see this premise again. And hopefully done better. Yeah. 
We got a Betty Davis, though. Put in the Betty Davis signal, the alarm that we play whenever there's a Betty Davis movie, because we got a Betty Davis movie next. You would think that I had learned my lesson by now, but I'm actually kind of excited about this. Because The Little Foxes is a good play, and also Dorothy Parker apparently contributed some additional scenes and dialogue for it. But yeah, I... uh. Yeah, (laughs) I'm looking at that 115 minutes, and Lucy ain't gonna pull the football up away from me this time, Susan. (laughs) Betty Davis is in this movie. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'm a sucker. What can I say? I'm going in thinking it might redeem Betty Davis, and you're probably right. (laughs) Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Maybe. Maybe. I wouldn't hold my breath. So tune in next week to find out if I am either hopelessly naive or David is accurately pessimistic. (laughs) Which actually ends up meaning the same thing. Yeah. And... Until then... This was 18 different movies over the next 90 years, and all of them are better than this one. (laughs) Seriously, I remember watching the Chris Rock one in theaters, and it's garbage, and I liked it way better than this. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Mr. Farnsworth, have you any further statement to make on the Logan Securities? Nothing now, gentlemen. Mr. Farnsworth is late for his board of directors meeting. That'll be a hot session. Please. (laughs)